Welcome to Conservation Chronicles. Uh, this is Mariana, back from hiatus, here with Jonah. How you doing, Jonah? I am doing well. I don't think I really have anything new to report. Yeah. Almost done with my first semester of grad school, and I don't feel any more educated. <laughs> <laughs> so how about you? Um, nothing much. Just uh, trying to get more involved with like some conservation um organizations here in town and that's really it uh, my parents came to visit which is why i wasn't here and um i took them around a little bit it was a little cold for them um even though they live in maryland they're still not used to the cold because they're from puerto rico um so it was cold for them but they were good sports they let me take them around um on a couple hikes and um because it's, it's really cold over here in los alamos right now um I know everybody thinks New Mexico is like a desert. Yeah. <laughs> but um, there are a lot of parts of it that are not um, like where I live. But anyway. Have you uh, gotten yeah. snow? Yes. There's actually snow right now. Um, oh, dang. Man, yeah. snow. Yeah, I know. Last year, we barely got any snow for some reason. And this year, we're getting plenty of snow. So um, that's pretty exciting. So, um yeah, it's snow. It's there's snow on the ground right now. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Well, it was 80 degrees here two days ago. <laughs> oh my god, really? <laughs> and then it was 38 degrees this morning. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, that's not that bad. Um, um 80 degrees. Wow. Uh, yeah, what elevation gross. are you at? Where you are? Are you at any elevation at all? Hardly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, my house is probably because we're like up on a hill a little bit, but. Uh -huh. We're like sort of right on the edge. San Marcos is right on the edge of the hill country. So if yeah. you go just to the west of here, you get into some pretty pretty cool hills that are really mm -hmm. forested. But when you head east, it's just um, like prairie and, well, what well, used to be prairie. And then it gets into like the coastal plain along the gulf. Yeah. Um, yeah. Cool. All right. Anyways, let's dive in. Yeah. Um, so today, want to couple, cover a couple news pieces um, that are both relevant to things that we have talked about or are going to talk about. So the first um, is about a, a new study that was just published. Um, the study was conducted by some people from Manchester Metropolitan University in the UK and then also BirdLife International. And they were looking at historical data on African gray parents in Ghana, which is in West Africa. And they were comparing it to current or more recent um, surveys that they conducted in Ghana. And comparing their surveys to the historical data, they found that Ghana's African gray parrot population has decreased by 90 to 99 percent. Oh my since God. 1992. That and, doesn't surprise me. Yeah, I mean, you, I, we talked about the African gray parrot in our um, one of our poaching episodes, I believe. And, mm -hmm. you know, this, this study wasn't even published at that point. And then this just backs up all the stuff we were talking about, how these, how the pet trade, and I guess you should say this severe decline is due to the pet trade. Um, and they, they even interviewed, like, people in Ghana about, African greys, including bird traders, and everyone just, you know, in their own opinions, they 
thought that the population was declining because they were seeing less or in the case of the bird traders because they were trading less and so they knew that there was less of them in the wild to be captured um and this is shocking because i mean it's it's been known for a long time that the african gray parrot there's so much trade going on it in it that species because it's such a popular pet um it's not even listed as appendix one on CITES. So there is legal trade of this animal, like severe legal trade. I mean, I've looked at the data from CITES because I was like comparing it to some other animals I was analyzing. And it's the numbers are staggering. It's like, how is this how is this legal? And one of the authors said like it should be all trade should be banned because yeah. we know how negative of an impact the trade is having on wild populations so people really need to step up and this study is just further supports that idea yeah absolutely wow that's crazy um that's not even on appendix one that's crazy yeah um yeah. Uh, and if, if any of our listener, for any of our listeners who haven't listened to our previous episodes, um, if you listen to our series on the, uh, on trafficking, um, we talk about CITES and all the appendices and how that works and everything. So I definitely recommend listening to that as well. Yeah. And we have a whole episode. Uh, it was poaching part three that mm-hmm. in which we covered, um, like wildlife trade. And that's, yeah. I think, where we featured yep. the African gray before. Um, okay, second piece of news. Um, about a week ago, as of this recording, or a little more than a week ago, on November 25th, 2018, an adult female Sumatran rhinoceros was captured in Borneo in the West Kutai region. And she was relocated to a breeding center where she's, it's intended that she's going to be part of a captive captive breeding effort. Um, Mm. It's thought that there's only between 30 and a hundred Sumatran rhinos left in the wild. Um, One of the most endangered animals on the planet. And like a lot of people have never even heard of it. It's not the type of rhino you think of like in Africa. Um, And interestingly, two years ago in the same region, West Kutai, there was another female that was captured and at that time two years ago she was it was the first time that a Sumatran rhino has been seen in that region in 40 years so i don't know if this one that was captured it wasn't really clear if this is the second rhino in that region in 40 years or if they found more in the past two years i'm not sure yeah but um that rhino died actually and i i won't go too much into this but there's a really interesting series of articles on mangabay.com, which is a really great environmental news website. And they cover this sort of saga of the Sumatran rhino since um, like the 80s when this captive breeding program was uh, materialized or they came up with the idea for it. And it's really interesting because it's just sort of been a saga of failure basically in the past two and a half decades. And this... This is this is really relevant to what we're going to be talking about today about um, captive breeding because, you know, this species is so endangered and you, it, you know, it's mostly endangered from habitat loss because the forests in Southeast Asia are just being cut down and the, the rhinos 
can't survive when there's no forest and they're also being poached to a certain extent. Um, you know, what, what is, how do you manage them? And the, you know, the, the best option seems like bringing them into captivities to make sure that they don't go extinct in the wild because it's, you know, it, the estimate is between 30 and a hundred. Well, what if it's 30? Like those could go in a couple of years. Um, and there's not enough breeding. Rhinos breed so slowly that for a population like that to recover is uh, frankly unlikely. And so, Mm -hmm. you know, securing the species in captivity is, seems like the best option, but like these articles point out, I definitely recommend looking them up on Manga Bay. It hasn't really panned out very well. And so it's kind of interesting. Manga Bay just, you know, recently finished that series. And then this news came out that they captured another rhino for the breeding Mm -hmm. effort um, that hasn't, you know, this, the breeding effort hasn't really done anything in the past 25 years and they're still continuing. So um, interesting. Very yeah. interesting. Yeah. So uh, as Jonah was saying, uh, this news leads us perfectly in our, into our topic today, uh, which is XC2 conservation. And XC2, which means off-site in Latin, um, as opposed to NC2, which means on-site. Uh, in conservation, these terms XC2 and NC2 refer to where the conservation action is occurring. So XC2 generally generally refers to a captive setting and NC2 refers to um, action in the wild. So today we're talking about XC2 conservation, which can involve zoos, aquariums, or even private collections. Uh, Jonah and I have more experience with zoos than we do with aquariums um, or private collections. So we'll mostly be talking about zoos today, but um, aquariums and private collections do also play a role um, in XC2 conservation um, as well. Yeah, so, um, I, I mean, yeah, we're going to basically be generalizing about when we say zoos, uh, when we say the word zoo in this episode, like a lot of it can also apply to aquariums and, you know, other captive collections. We're just sort of using yeah. that as a general term for captive wildlife, I guess. Um, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so, we, in, in that third episode third episode on poaching um we did cover a little bit about the wildlife trade throughout history and um there's a lot of a lot of that is relevant to the history of zoos but i I don't really want to go into too much detail about the history of zoos because there's it's a pretty complex history and it's it's really interesting but basically what what we think of as zoos um sort of began to come about in the in the 19th century. Um, and I guess when we're referring to zoos, we're also specifically talking about captive wildlife that's on public display generally. And so that's in the 19th century, that's when that started to kind of take hold in certain places. And it, the, the London Zoo really marked the first step in the evolution of zoos you know, like, like we talked about in that poaching episode, um, there, people have been keeping wildlife for forever. Um, it, this isn't anything new. So people have always, you know, especially royalties and stuff, like we briefly mentioned, they had their own captive menageries of animals and, um, private game hunting land and stuff like that. Um, 
And that sort of started to change in the 1830s when the collection of wildlife that was at the London Zoo um, sort of started to open its doors to the public. And it was really, originally, it was like a place for people to, you know, have live specimens to study and things. And then people started, you know, they started giving family members, you know, special tours. And then everyone was interested and they were like, why don't we just open this up as a as a public attraction for people to come see these wild animals. Uh, and there's a really, there's a really good book um, called Savages and Beasts, The Birth of the Modern Zoo by Nigel Rothfels. And that, it really goes into a lot of detail about the evolution of zoos, um, you know, since the London Zoo in the 1830s all the way up till now. But, um, you know, essentially the, the, um, the trade in wildlife for public entertainment grew throughout the 19th century because, you know, okay, people wanted to see wild animals, so they started having to get wild animals to put on display. And so then, you know, there was a lot of trade going on. You know, that's where that's where zoo animals all originated from, obviously. It was wild animals. And, uh, I mean, I know at least for the Saddleville Stork as recently as 2006 – wild animals, wild saddle bills have been captured for zoos in Europe. So it's still going on, which is kind of shocking. Um, And there's actually also a really interesting John Wayne movie called Hatari. Have you ever seen that? No, I I think you mentioned it before and I meant to watch it and I never did. It's really interesting. It's like he is a game he he's in charge of a game capture operation in Africa (laughs) and they catch like a bunch of antelope and stuff for zoos. And it has real footage of this process of them capturing wild animals for zoos. It's really, really interesting. And they're like, Oh yeah, that zebra is going to the San Diego zoo. And they're like talking about it. And and it's Mm -hmm. like a, it's a fictional story obviously, but it's kind of an interesting, um, uh, you know, look into the way that these people operated because it's yeah. it's pretty accurate, I imagine. Mm-hmm. Um, but anyways, so, okay, so, you know, the zoos really evolved from the 1830s, obviously, and um, some really important and monumental changes occurred basically between the 1830s and the 1970s. So the first was that... Um, you know, through science, there was an under an increased understanding of biology and animal husbandry that improved living conditions and you know, decreased mortality of zoo animals. That was a huge issue in the beginning. Animals were just dying so much because they didn't know how to care for them. Um, then, you know, more recently, especially in the, the early 20th century, um, actually maybe in the 1880s it started, this book talks about the savages and beasts talks about a, a guy that came up with this idea for cageless exhibits mm-hmm. um, or a cageless exhibit designs where they use like moats to separate the animals and the people so that um, they can see them better. And it looks more like their natural habitat sort of um, there's not bars in front of them. And it's more, you know, more like a natural habitat for the animals to mm-hmm. live in. Um, third, there was a shift from capturing wild animals, like I was saying, to utilizing a, a network of captive breeding for trading among zoos. And then finally, um, 
most recently, especially sort of starting in the 1970s, there was a shift towards zoo designs that maximized space for animals and created natural environments, replicated natural environments for them, and also provided sort of an immersive experience for guests so that they can learn about the animals and, and see them better. So if you think about a lot of zoos where you're you know, the zoos, a lot of zoos are broken up into like, oh, this is the whatever African savanna section. And the yeah. path sort of winds through all these exhibits. And there's little like bird exhibits, you know, put in little pockets along the trail next to other big exhibits. And so they, you know, it makes it more of an immersive experience where it's like you're going through this ecosystem, learning about a lot of the different animals that are there. Maybe mm-hmm. for the larger animals like lions or gorillas, there's like different ways you can view the exhibit from different sides so you can you know see the animals better and then they have different interpretive signs and stuff throughout this trail um and i think it was the um woodland park zoo in seattle that really Hmm. that basically started that and um now that's what most some of the best zoos that's what they do now yeah Mm -hmm. um so basically i sort of look at it in summary, zoos went from originally just being exploitative where it's just like, you know, a lion in a small box cage for you to look at in which people were paying to look at it um, to now going to an animal and conservation focused priority um, where, you know, well-being is important, well-being of animals, um, education of guests, and then conservation of wild animals. So, it's it's seriously shifted and it's really interesting to look at the details of the history and it's it's like a lot of people know that's just what zoos do when you think about it now but zoos have come a seriously long way <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yes they they have um during this history zoos have contributed significantly to conservation of wild populations, as well as, of course, the understanding of the biology of some species, um, some examples of which Joan has already given us. Um, Another example is the San Diego Zoo's Wild Animal Park, now called the Safari Park, which was the first to discover that white rhino females only go into estrus when they're around one another. Um, So rhinos were thought to be exclusively solitary before, um, but thanks to the huge open exhibit space they had, uh, the females were allowed to socialize and then began to breed. Um, So I think that's a great example of a captive setting that um, enabled us to learn a lot because they put the animals first um, with that with that huge space for them. Um, And also, in some cases, zoos have helped pioneer research in wildlife disease and behavior, too, which is then incorporated into in situ or in the field conservation efforts. Yeah, I um, I think this is also really relevant because I just went up to the Dallas Zoo a couple weeks ago because I partnered with them for my Saddleable Stork project. And the reason why this is awesome is because no one's ever studied Saddleable Stork, so we don't know things about them. No one's ever captured them. Um, and so I wanted to go up and practice handling them and learn certain things about them and you know test putting on the transmitters and take some measurements and stuff. And it was so enlightening. It, it's just shocking because the information that I was able to get there and from the zookeepers who have experience with saddlebills, it's it's not that information is not any isn't anywhere else except in a zoo. Like, for example, the edges of the upper bill of the saddlebill, there it's as sharp as a kitchen knife. 
Oh, wow. <laughs> so I would have I would have never thought that. I would have just been like, bare hands, let's grab this thing. <laughs> but it's super sharp. Wow, that's um, cool. And like other things about the way you capture them just because they're, I mean, they're, they can seriously be lethal. Yeah. And wow. that's, just, that's just one example. And then learning other things about their behavior um, and like chick rearing and nesting and stuff. So I think that's a really cool, just personally, that's something that just happened where zoos play an important role in helping in situ work because now I can go into the field and I've seen these animals up close. I had, you know, it really forced me to think about things differently and, you know, things happen differently than I thought they would. And just now I know more about the animal that I'm working with since I had it in my hand. And that's going to really help me, not only help me with my research, but it's going to be less stressful for the animal. Because imagine I get out there and I've never touched a saddle bow before. Yeah. And I, I capture it and I have never touched one. So yeah. And it kills you. Yeah, it just like <laughs> slices my neck with its bill. <laughs> I heard some, no, I, well, not that that happened, but I heard some horror yeah. stories. Like these things are, um, they, they're pretty crazy. Like you never yeah. think a bird could be so deadly. Right. Um, That's cool. But um, I obviously, and this is something that we'll talk, we'll, we're going to elaborate on some of these things. So this right now we're just sort of listing um the roles that zoos have. They also play a significant role in education. Um, and I, and we'll definitely elaborate on this. And I know Mariana has a lot to say about this as well, but I, I actually personally credit the San Diego zoo with instilling me with an interest in wildlife. Um, Cause I grew up in San Diego and I mean, in reality, San Diego has lots of this natural environment in San Diego is there's so much biodiversity and this really amazing places to go out in the wild. But my parents just weren't those kind of people. Um, they didn't know that. I didn't know that until I, you know, moved back there after going to college or would re visit back there after going to college. And so, you know, the only way for me to whatever connect or, see wildlife was at the San Diego Zoo. And, you know, I would drive my, especially my mom crazy going to the zoo so much. I just lived at that place because I just, it made me love wildlife because the things I learned there and getting to see them. And um, it, it just, it put me in the, this direction in my life. And for many people, they don't have an option of, going and seeing real wild animals and being out in a natural environment, unfortunately, and when they live in, in cities and things, a zoo is the only way for them to see wild animals. And um, that's their only opportunity is to, to learn and connect with wildlife and, and see what conservation is about. And so that role really shouldn't be downplayed. Um, and, I, you know, I'll never... I, th I think about this anytime I think about a zoo, I think about this comment that one of our friends said, I won't say his name. He probably knows who he is. <laughs> I'm not mad about it, but it just, it is really thought provoking. We went to the San Diego zoo and, you know, I grew up at that place and I really love it. And he grew up, you know, in the woods and going hunting and stuff and getting to see wild animals and being outside. 
And he was like, yeah, this is cool, but I don't think I'd want my kids growing up here. And I mean, I didn't take that personally, but it's a really, it's really thought provoking because some people that's all they can grow up with. Mm -hmm. Um, Everyone doesn't get to spend their time in the woods. And that's where I see the role of zoos as being the most vital, reaching those kind of people. Um, And like, you know, if it wasn't for zoos, I wouldn't have learned about wildlife and learned about so many species. And I really wouldn't be where I am now. It, It really shaped my future. Um, I originally wanted to be a zookeeper because I thought that was the only way that I could work with wild animals. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, I was an intern at the zoo in high school and we were like, you know, learning about the different careers at the zoo. And, you know, the the San Diego Zoo has a conservation research institute and it's awesome. And I went on to, you know, work on one of their field projects later. But they, I we had a day where we spent with one of their ecologists and I was like, wait, wait you can like study wildlife, not in a zoo. Like I didn't know that. And I'm 15 years old. Um, and that's really what made me realize that I can become a wildlife biologist. Um, yeah. so it, I, that the, that this value and role of zoos has just been so important in my life and, um, a lot of others, I'm, I'm sure. Yeah, I um I worked at the Cincinnati Zoo for about eight months while I was in Ohio, and I worked in the education department. And it's amazing, um, basically being on the other, just seeing little little Jonas learning about <laughs> wildlife, <laughs> future scientists, and um, it, it's a great it's a great program, and they have a dedicated building where kids can walk in, and there's like a sloth hanging out overhead, and um, macaws and such, and um, it, it's just really great because um, a lot of kids, like like you were saying, I mean, Cincinnati is an urban landscape. And you have to drive like half an hour to get to a walk, a hiking trail. Um, a and most hiking people trail, never even leave that radius. Yeah, most. Yeah, exactly. So to to see these kids um, learning about wildlife, um, you know, uh, across the globe, and including in their backyard, was was really inspiring. And um, yeah, a zoo's role in education is one of the most critical roles it has. Uh, in fact, the AZA, which is the Association of Zoos and Aquariums has a conservation education committee, uh, which is solely dedicated to helping accredited zoos and aquariums uh, develop and refine education programs for the public, like the ones in, in Cincinnati, which was called Zoo Troop. Um, they also have other other programs. But um, these can be classes, field trips, camps, um, animal presentations, you name it. Um, if you have a modern zoo near you, it probably has an education program. Um, so you can check it out. Um, a lot of them have... Um, most of the education programs are tailored toward children uh, because that's, you know, we really want to get um, children to empathize with nature early in their lives. Um, but there are also um, adult oriented programs as well. So um, I recommend definitely um, getting involved um, either just for fun or, or even just um, to help uh, funding or anything like that. It's They're really good programs. So, yeah. Um, and then finally, the, I mean, in my opinion, it's the most important role of a zoo is that the direct conservation that they're involved in of a lot of species, especially like threatened species. Um, so the, 
The modern zoo is heavily involved in supporting or facilitating field research and conservation. And like I said, some of them even have their own conservation research institutes like San Diego, Cincinnati. Cincinnati was actually, has been one of the biggest players in the Sumatran rhino um, saga. And, you know, in funding it and, you know, helping with that effort. And I mean, it's, it's crazy. A lot of being in, when I was working in Zambia, like hearing about these people from this, I forget the zoo now, um, but coming and doing vulture surveys. And then I'm learning about all these other zoos that are involved in research over there. Um, like the Zoological Society of London does amazing stuff, especially like the things I'm thinking of are in North Africa. And I'll talk about that in a second, but they have these research institutes that are dedicated to research and conservation. So a zoo isn't only just, you know, taking care of animals and showing them to people. There's so much more going on behind the scenes. And, you know, they, they definitely advertise that in their, you know, uh, marketing material and and stuff in the zoos. But I, I don't think that people receive that as much as just basically seeing animals and learning stuff about the animals. They don't recognize how much the zoos are doing for these animals that they also have in captivity. Um, Mm. And I mean, in, in recent decades, captive populations of some species have actually been used to reestablish animals back in the wild. So like, if you think about the Kahansi spray toad that we talked about in one of our episodes, they were all brought into captivity and they were bred and then released back in the wild. And then, you know, there was issues with that. But if it weren't for them taking those toads into captivity, they probably would have gone extinct. Um, the northern bald ibis, which we covered in our last episode that I covered with Camden, um, he briefly talked about the reintroductions in Europe. That's from captive animals. Um, and it's, you know, even though the... Um, I think this is the key role of zoos. It's enormously complex and it's a, it's a huge thing to do, which is, and it's, it's not necessarily guaranteed success, just like the Sumatran rhino, which I mentioned, um, which is why XC2 conservation has a lot of critics. But I think there's so many success stories that those critics just need to be referred to because it, it works for a lot of species and it has saved a lot of species. Um, if we didn't have zoo programs that, you know, focus on captive breeding and reintroduction, then these species would be gone or they would only exist whatever on Texas hunting ranches like the scimitar horned oryx, um, which was listed as extinct in the wild in 2000 and in wild individuals haven't been seen since the 1990s. But recently, um, just in August, 2016, thanks to a, a very big collaborative effort involving the Zoological Society of London and then sort of coordinated by the Sahara Conservation Fund, they used captive bred scimitar horned oryx, which you should look them up because they are just they're one of my favorite ungulates. They're so beautiful and no one has ever heard of them. Um, Mm. They reintroduced them into a game reserve in Chad, um, central Chad specifically, which is like the Sahel region, like sort of the edge of the Sahara desert. So these are desert antelopes. Um, And 
since then they've been you know moving more oryx to chad in pre-release pens and getting ready to release them and since the release in 2016 I, the latest number i saw was the wild population has grown to almost 200 which is more than the entire sumatran rhino population <laughs> Um, so that's just from reintroduction this animal was extinct in the wild until two years ago and there's already a population of 200 and they i follow them i remember like i'm so obsessed with this species and i remember because i follow the sahara conservation fund on facebook i remember they posted a video of the release the day it happened and like i'll never forget that as long as i live because it's just so exciting to see that happen because they're so um they, they keep it so public because they want people to be invested in this and care about it and see it happening. And then they're posting during the breeding season how many calves have been born. And all of that is possible because of captive breeding efforts and by zoos and support by zoos. Um, same thing happened with the Arabian oryx, which is another amazing oryx that is extinct in the wild. And, you know, zoo captive breeding and reintroduction efforts reestablished it in the Middle East and... Now it's considered vulnerable by the IUCN, which is the lowest level of threat on the threat scale. Um, there's a lot of good examples with ungulates, including um, Przewalski's wild horse, which was also extinct in the wild and released. Pierre David's deer, which is, I think, technically still extinct in the wild, but there's like a huge captive population that's being bred. Visayan warty pig, Philippine spotted deer. There's a lot of ungulates, and I think that's just because they're the easiest to maintain and breed in captivity because they're, they're pretty basic in their ecology and their, the care that's required. Mm-hmm. Um, but if you also think about, I think we covered it, we talked about it in the, the Kittred episode, the mountain yellow-legged frog, which also w- went extinct in the wild and was bred and has been being released. Um, there's a lot of actually amphibians that zoos, without zoos they wouldn't exist anymore and there's this um organization that's called the amphibian arc and they are involved in carrying out the amphibian conservation action plan which is all about amphibian conservation but a lot of it has to do with captive breeding and and research and i mean zoos are the ones that are doing this stuff um with these amphibians because they have the know-how to care for these animals so it's it's there's so I mean we could just go on and on about all these examples because the programs that zoos have for these endangered species and helping you know rescue them sort of whatever like I, it's interesting that name amphibian ark which is like referring to Noah's ark because they're trying to rescue they're trying to save these species yeah. that are being hit hard by chytrid fungus especially mm-hmm. um, yeah yeah so I think. As Jonas um, already mentioned, breeding programs and um, animal care and husbandry, like those are the those are some of the biggest things that um, the captive world brings to conservation and like what they can contribute. And um, my favorite story is of the iguaca, better known as the Puerto Rican parrot, which I've uh, never seen, even though I've been. <laughs> in their habitat, but, um, they're obviously extremely rare. Um, it's a really important bird ecologically and culturally for Puerto Rico. Also the only native species of parrot remaining on American soil, which is pretty cool. Mm. Uh, so the iguaca, it's a kind of like a, an Amazon parrot, uh, before European colon, uh, by that, by which I mean, that's the 
the type of parrot, not that it comes from the Amazon. But anyway, <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, before European colonization, um, these birds may have numbered up to a million on Puerto Rico, um, which is a lot for a small island. Currently, they're limited to three small populations at three protected locations on the island. Um, the numbers are constantly changing, but there are about 600 Iguaca living in captivity today and about 30 or 40 wild individuals in the release sites. That This bird would have gone extinct for sure about 40 years ago, if not for some um, last-minute conservation efforts. So the Puerto Rican Parrot Recovery Plan was launched in 1975. Uh, there were 13 Puerto Rican parrots or iguacas in the wild at that time, only 13. So they launched this plan um, as a last-ditch last ditch effort. It was a collaborative effort between the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, the U.S. Forest Service, and the Puerto Rico Department of Natural and Environmental Resources, which does really great work on the island. Um, so... Uh, what they did was they did like uh, intense habitat conservation efforts and research, which helped us to understand the parrot's needs in the field. But it was the XC2 aviary breeding program that was initiated, which really saved the population. Um, because as we know, it's important to know their needs in the wild, but sometimes the breeding programs are are really the key um, to rescuing these, these species. And that's what happened in this case. So they had an aviary breeding program um, that was extremely successful. And they were, you know, the birds were kept in a captive setting in the breeding program and controlled conditions before they could be experimentally released. And that aviary breeding program eventually partnered with the Lincoln Park Zoo in 2006. And so some people might think, you know, after all these many years of successful breeding efforts and, and successful work in Puerto Rico, what would a zoo be able to contribute to an already established program, and it turns out it was a lot. So the Lincoln Park Zoo has helped in every aspect of the conservation effort, from record keeping to animal care to population analyses and planning, genetics, breeding, and release logistics, and of course, helping just with um, husbandry as well. And it's an ongoing effort, uh, this this program, which really involves XC2 and NC2 management uh, working side by side, which I think is is where zoos really shine. Um, as Jonah was saying, in their conservation efforts. So fairly recently, actually in 2015, the AZA initiated a program called SAFE, which is Saving Animals from Extinction. I did not know about this program before. Neither did I, I. Yeah, before I discovered it a couple, a couple days ago. So it has over 220 participating zoos and aquariums around the world. The premise for the program is to combine, as I said, XC2 and NC2 conservation um, using scientific expertise, stakeholder engagement, public advocacy, and field and laboratory research to help save some of the most endangered species in the world. So some of the most notable species they've been working with already include the African penguin, the black rhino, the vaquita, which has been in the news a lot, uh, the western pond turtle, the black-footed ferret, another collaborative success story. And lest we forget invertebrates, the Atlantic acropora coral. <laughs> ah, yes. <laughs> yes. The acropora coral. <laughs> of course, which everybody knows about. Um, <laughs> one, I, California condor, that's probably one of them. That's like oh, another huge um, successful one. You know, surprisingly, I didn't see the condor on their list. But, oh. Well, that's um, another good example of how zoos But they, I think they have like over 100 animals and they weren't all on the list I saw. So, I, I yeah, I, I bet the condor is probably. Yeah, but yeah, I know the condor is a good, another good really. A good success story, but yeah. So there are definitely there are definitely shortcomings. Um, if I don't even know if that's the right word, 
to XC2 conservation um, or downsides, I guess. It's really expensive. And like I already said, it's not necessarily guaranteed to be successful. You know, talking about money, if you remember in the Kahansi spray toad episode, we said that since it's since it began in the 90s, the Kahansi spray toad project has cost $12 million, which is a lot for a little frog. And they they have totally made progress, but not as much progress as you would expect from spending $12 million. Yeah. And obviously not all that $12 million was involved in the XC2 side of things. Um, because they were, you know, doing those misters in the gorge and and trying to do some NC2 stuff as well because the XC2 stuff doesn't matter if there's nothing NC2 to do. If there's no wild habitat left, then the animals, you're not going to be able to release them back in the wild or do anything. Yeah. Um, but that's just an example. And I, you know, unfortunately, financials aren't as transparent in conservation efforts which I personally wish they would be because I think it would be really just me <laughs> being very jaded. I think it would be really enlightening to see the um, where the money is going. Yeah. Because so there's a couple different ways that zoos or organizations, this is like going off on it, sort of a little bit of a tangent. There's different ways that zoos or organizations raise money. It's either we are raising money for this specific species. Help us to save this species. So when you donate your money, it goes towards that specific species. Or they say, help us save this rhinos or something. And so it's like a group of animals. Um, or they just say, help us protect endangered species. So depending on the way the campaign is set up, when you donate, if you're donating to something that was advertised to specifically go towards elephants or something, then the money's probably going to go directly towards elephants. But as they get more general with the way that the campaign is advertised, the money can go where they want. Um, and so it's it's. I'd be really curious to see, you know, the weight of where money is going, like, you know, how much money is going towards whatever pandas compared to Kahansi spray toads, you know? Because... Yeah. Um, I have no doubt there is a severe imbalance. And obviously, you know, larger animals are more expensive. But the more money, if, you know, more a disproportionate amount of money going towards one species is, in my opinion, it's putting priority on one species over another and putting more value on one species over another, which is which is really tricky. And that is like, that's beyond the scope of talking about zoos. But that's, that's just one... Um, criticism that people have of XC2 conservation. It costs so much money and you're not really getting that much return, mm -hmm. but it, when there is return, it's, it's major or it can be major. Mm -hmm. And I mean, that's what you have to do. You have to invest because if you just throw in the towel, like, Oh, well they're extinct in the wild. What are we going to do? Then it's all gone. And then, you know, then even more money goes towards elephants. Yeah. <laughs> instead of towards scimitar <laughs> horned oryx or whatever. And uh, going back to the Sumatran rhino example, it, it's a it's a it's a slippery slope, and it's it's difficult to form an opinion about for me to form an opinion about some of this stuff because, especially when you're talking about the Sumatran rhino, so much money has gone into that, and they've literally made it nowhere. They've probably like 
we're probably worse off now than we were back when they started for a variety of reasons. Um, and, you know, all these these issues that I'm talking about are definitely species dependent. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I mean, one of, geez, one of the things that I also think of, I like I said, it, this is really successful in amphibians and carnivores and, and birds also, which, man, we should have had... Um, we should have like had Evan join us for this discussion because he's doing the Hawaiian crow in Hawaii. I know. I, I, yeah, we should have. Oh, which I the Hawaiian crow was extinct in the wild till recently yeah. in the San Diego Zoo. That's right. We introduced it. Um, another good example. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Anyways, there's plenty of good bird examples as well. But when we talk about carnivores, it gets kind of, it's, it's very different. So people, you, you know, th- use zoos saving tigers and lions and cheetahs is a big thing and actually just yesterday i saw a paper or not a paper sort of like a summary paper or something uh talking about the the role of zoos in cheetah conservation and it was super vague Mm. because there's only so much you can say because obviously you know zoos help with maintaining genetic diversity and and things like that but I mean, I, I, maybe I should know because I work with cheetahs, but I don't really know of like cheetah reintroduction yeah. programs yeah. where you reestablished a population of cheetahs because that doesn't normally happen with carnivores. Because how do you do that? How does a, you know, a, let's use the oryx for an example. The oryx, they just feed on vegetation like that. That's it. Um, mm-hmm. There's not really, I mean, definitely in a desert environment, there's really important things that they have to know. But I think a lot of that is just instinctual anyways and physiological, like whether they can smell water or however they do it. Um, Mm -hmm. But you put it, you release, so it's not that difficult to release a whole herd back in the wild and they can survive. You release a tiger back in the wild that's been bred in captivity and stuff. It doesn't know how to hunt. Um, It just is at a, it's at a survival disadvantage. And how do you, how do you deal with that with carnivores? And people use, tote zoos as the savior of these carnivores all the time but while they may be supporting in situ conservation and research on them how are they how is the captive population of zoos contributing towards recovering the wild populations and Mm i i mean if, if someone knows of some examples which i'm sure there are some i would love to hear about them but i can't think of any off the top of my head because it just it just doesn't happen yeah. Yeah. I'd like to hear some too. I know the cheetah is on the safe program that I mentioned, um, but I didn't, I didn't click on that one. Um, so if, if you go to the safe program website, you can click on the animal and it has like a, they show you like the, uh, the program plan, but like you said, it's really vague. It doesn't get specifics. It's just like, Oh, working with genetics or things like that, depending on the species. I didn't look at the cheetah one, but yeah, there's just, it's, it's really vague. Um, not a lot of specifics, but yeah, if anybody knows, we'd love to hear from you. So, And I know uh, I actually just Googled cheetah intro- reintroduction and there's talk about cheetah reintroduction in India because they used to be native there. And this title says cheetah reintroduction in India is a project worth revisiting. So I think, and I'm thinking of a couple examples now where carnivore reintroduction has been attempted, but it's, it fails because of the reasons I was saying that their ecology is just so different. You can't just release an animal that's been bred in captivity and expect it to be able to know how to survive. Yeah. Um, 
I know that World Wildlife Fund re- Fund released a plan for reintroducing um, tigers to, I think, to Kazakhstan, hmm. which is like, that sounds awesome, like to restore them in that area, their historical range and everything. Um, but how realistic is that? And you read the plan and it is, um, it's, uh, you know, you have to restore the ungulate populations and all that stuff. So there's a lot going on before you can reintroduce a carnivore into the wild. But then still, even when you do that 10 years down the line, when you've restored prey populations and stuff, you still have that hurdle to get over where, how does this animal survive? And I think there was one like rehabilitated tiger cub that was released into the wild. I remember it because it was like all in the news because it's such a big deal. But the point is, is that it, it doesn't really happen that often because it's, yeah, there's still these challenges that we don't know how to deal with. And I don't know how we will deal with them because how do you, I, I don't have an answer. Yeah. So I'm, I'm definitely critical of the XC2 stuff of carnivores because it's not as realistic Mm-hmm, not mm-hmm. that I think that zoos don't play a role in carnivore conservation, but as far as reintroduction, because, I mean, isn't that the point of ke- keeping these animals, that's the ultimate point of keeping these animals in captivity is so that they can help the wild populations. Yeah. Exactly. And the best way for them to help the wild populations is directly by these captive animals being released back into the wild. There's yeah. obviously indirect ways, like they're ambassadors for their species and things like that, which... I think we'll talk about in a minute. Do you want to talk about the promoting native wildlife? That's This is another role that we didn't really mention, actually. Yeah. Um, actually, Cincinnati was good at this. So another um, another role that, that zoos do, and I think this is kind of something that certain zoos do better than others, but anyway, um, is promoting native wildlife in places. So some zoos only have species from a local area, uh, from the local area, which helps foster an interest in native ecosystems. So it, you know, it's, it's important to get, you know, visitors, most visitors from a zoo will be from the local area and for them to know about what else is around them, um, actually in the wild is, um, is really critical to, to the community. So some examples, um, the Arizona desert, uh, Arizona Sonoran Desert Museum in Tucson, uh, the North Carolina Zoo in Ashboro has a really great North Carolina exhibit. Um, Cincinnati has a has a really good local uh, local wildlife exhibit. Um, what kind so, of local wildlife so, are in Cincinnati? <laughs> <laughs> they've got some squirrels and <laughs> rather the stuff that should be there. <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah, um, if the rivers weren't catching on fire in Ohio, but um, oh my gosh, that, okay, that hasn't happened for like fifty years. But um, anyway. <laughs> So, so yeah, many large-scale zoos um, do this thing, like San Diego, um, and even support local conservation work um, and research. And this is uh, the best models, the best model for zoos because they help to make people invested in their local area and places and species that they may never see abroad. Um, like we mentioned, some people, you know, never travel abroad, and it, it may be charismatic to have, you know, an Africa section and all those things to get them interested um, in global conservation issues. But if they never go abroad, the, the impact a person can make in their community is really huge. Um, so to get them interested in con- conservation in their own community is really important. And I've found in my own experience that, you know, some people might think, oh, well, you know, a white-tailed deer in my backyard isn't nearly as interesting as, you know, a giraffe. 
But I've found in my experience that that it can be, um, especially when you catch people early, like the kids um, at the Cincinnati Zoo, they can become really super, super interested in in their local wildlife just by being introduced to it. Just a simple fact or just a simple action of being of introducing them to their local wildlife can be really impactful for local conservation. Yeah, and it goes both ways because someone that grew up with giraffes in Africa might think that giraffes are boring. They come yeah. to the United States like, wow, white-tailed deer. Like, we don't have deer that shed their antlers in Africa. Like, that's <laughs> so it, it goes both ways. Yeah. We're just mm-hmm. used to certain animals. And yeah, I think that's it's really cool because if they, if people can't care about the wildlife that lives around them, then really, how can they care about wildlife around the globe? Yeah. It, it starts at it starts at home, really. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I really love those, those sections of the zoo. And well, that's actually what I was talking about when I was in the internship at the San Diego zoo and we went out with an ecologist, you know, half of the 1800 acres that the wild animal park owns is dedicated to the, the native habitat. And so they Mm -hmm. do a lot of research on native species because all, basically all the native species in San Diego are endangered. And that zoo is the San Diego Zoo is directly, I mean, they are they are doing research on the native endangered species there. And that's what I did. I was trapping Stevens kangaroo rats um, about five years ago. And that's an endangered species that they helped translocate and, and stuff. And the San Diego Zoo was doing the research. And so having, I think, I mean, that's obviously a huge institution and a lot of zoos don't have that kind of capacity, but it's awesome for them to be able to be helping reintroduce Arabian oryx into the wild and also working on a Pacific pocket mouse or something mm-hmm. that's endangered right there in our backyard. Um, so I love, I love that stuff. Yeah. Um, so what should zoos prioritize? Because this, this can kind of get, this can kind of be a muddy area because, because zoos serve all of these roles, how do they prioritize their roles? And like I said, I think that recovery of wild populations is the, is the most important thing, and that should be prioritized. Second should be promoting an interest and investment in wildlife and their habitats, native and, you know, abroad. So I think that captive breeding efforts are the most important thing because that's the way that a lot of species, wild populations are going to be recovered. Mm-hmm. And I think we've, we've, we're sort of at this strange point in history where people, well, not that it's strange to value freedom, but people value freedom so much that it's, it's bled over into the way we think about animals and animal welfare, mm-hmm. which is, which is good and bad. So, you know, these, these kind of sentiments and emotions have made a lot of people think of zoos as, as cruel and like you know, animal prisons and, and stuff like that. And, and, uh, don't get me wrong. Some definitely are. Yeah. <laughs> like that's why there's an accreditation process that we didn't really go into because it's really complex. But right. zoos have to be accredited by the AZA, it, and they have to meet certain criteria. And I will never forget. I oof, I remember as let's see. I was probably 13 years old, and my family was in Las Vegas, and we went to the Las Vegas Zoo. 13 years old. I walked out of there, and I told my mom. Is there a way we can like report this place somehow? It was mm. so horrendous. Oh. They had like lions and like it looked like I, I'll never forget the lion's face was it was just disgusting. So unsanitary. This so there are zoos zoos that are like animal prisons. 
but that's not really what we're talking about. They like, we definitely do not approve of those, but these criteria can be subjective because it, it's kind of emotional when, when we're deciding, Oh, is this, is it cruel or or whatever? Um, but it's also, (laughs) I'm, I'm kind of contradicting myself. It's also objective because there is an accreditation process, Mm -hmm. but as far as our feelings about, you know, the way certain people feel about zoos, especially critics, it's, it can be really subjective because they're basing that solely on their emotions. Um, and I mean, it's, it's definitely hard for me to take a stance because I don't know, like just, uh, in, in some respects, because, you know, why do zoo, why do zoos need to have all these animals that, you know, that, Nothing's being done about their conservation. Like they're super common. They're not threatened. They, they're they're actually using up money to be cared for and stuff. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Because like, I'll never forget the San Diego Zoo. I would get mad when I was young. Be like, they'd get rid of like some cool animal, like the Red River Hog or something, and they'd put like meerkats there. It's like, <laughs> why do you need four meerkat exhibits distributed <laughs> out the zoo? Like, yes, they're they're super fun animals to look at, but like. Why don't you, this space could be used to show people like a red river hog because no one's ever heard of that or something. Mm -hmm. But it's also like, well, you know, people need to care about meerkats too. You know, they can become endangered. And so it's like a weird thing for me personally to take a stance. But then again, you know, 150 years ago, if that was our approach, well, these animals are common. We don't need to keep them. Then a lot of the animals we have now wouldn't be here because they became very endangered within the last 150 years. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it, where is the balance? I don't have an answer. Um, and I also sort of, I don't know, as I advance in my career, I, I've i realized that I'm, I personally struggle going to zoos and I haven't been to the San Diego Zoo in a couple of years. And I went to the Dallas Zoo recently when I was done working there. I, you know, they let me go and check out the zoo. And it was actually really emotional for me to see animals that I've seen in the wild on display, animals that I've worked with and, you know, <laughs> seen how they can move, how a cheetah can move 21 miles in one night. And like, I have seen that and followed it. And it's, it's really emotional, not because I think that the zoos are cruel or whatever, but cause I know they're cared for and they're, you know, this is the only opportunity visitors get to see them. But it's, I think it's emotional because, you know, our, the way our world is now is our world has to be, what am I trying to say? We're, we live in a world where we, the only way to hold on to these species is to bring them into captivity. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way to get people to care about them. And I often think about, you know, let's say 2000 years ago, someone living wherever in the middle of Tibet, they know their wildlife there. They don't know that jaguars exist. They don't know that, um, grizzly bears exist well i guess brown there was brown bears there but they don't know that pronghorn exists or you know animals around the the Mm -hmm. rest of the world because this things were the way they're supposed to be so it just like is very core dilemma that a dilemma that is like eats at my core because it's it's not that i don't like seeing the animals in captivity it's just like you know i've seen these animals in the wild and just it's amazing to see them in a wild and now seeing them here this is what's required and it's sad that this is what's required you know what i mean yeah. So it's kind of a moral issue for me, I think. I agree. It's it's hard for me to see animals in their exhibits too. And, you know, no serious zoo, no accredited zoo wants to be 
a repository for animals that no longer exist in the wild. Like they don't want that, which is why they do so much conservation work and which is why conservation work is and should be the biggest, their biggest role and the role that they put most of their effort into. But yeah, I agree for me when I, when I stand in front of an exhibit at a zoo, um, I do get a little bit sad (laughs) because I, to me that it's kind of, this is a really hyperbolic word, but to me, that's like a sacrificial animal. And um, if this is a serious accredited zoo, of course, that animal is being, being taken care of, you know, with, you know, with a lot of care, uh, science, even love, you know, they care about their animals. But in truth, I believe it lives one hundredth of the quality of life that it would in the wild. A lot of people in the captive profession will disagree. Um, (laughs) And it it may be an incendiary thing to say, and maybe it's an exaggerative number, but that's what I believe. Um, But regardless, that 100th better be the best 100th that institution can offer that animal. And um, the majority of of modern zoos do do feel that way, that they want to give them the best life. So putting conservation aside, which I agree should be the, the major, um, the major, you know, where they, where, they, where they put all their effort and funding, most of it. Um, I also think that zoos should focus on improving and exa- and expanding their exhibits. Um, and many do, actually. Uh, usually when I, when I visit a zoo, there's always like an exhibit being worked on, construction being done to um, improve the exhibits. And that's awesome. I love it when I see that, even if it means, you know, the polar bear is off at another zoo for two years, um, which is what happened at the North Carolina Zoo. I think that's awesome because they improved the, the exhibit. So... I think that's that's really great work, and they have. I've noticed that zoos have trouble funding those kind of projects, the exhibit projects. And I do agree that most funding can, should go to conservation, but I also think that this should also be a funding priority as well. I, I definitely agree with that, and that's an interesting point that you raised. That it's harder for them to raise money for that, and it is just thinking about all the time that I spent at the San Diego Zoo and seeing all their campaigns and stuff. I mean, they had to have like philanthrop philanthropists trying to raise money to, you know, yeah. build these bigger exhibits for the elephants, which there was like a period in time where I went to a bunch of these zoos and they like basically between like 2008 and 2012 or 13, like all these zoos across the country that I went to were just like revamping their elephant exhibits because they realized mm-hmm. that elephants need more space for their psychological well-being. And yeah, it's not as easy to raise money for that as say like, well, let's raise to to help raise money to stop poaching of elephants in the wild. People are more likely to give money to that, you know? Yeah, exactly. That's a good point. So, yeah, I think that's really important. I think it's also important um, also because, you know, Jonah uh, mentioned these like immersive sections of the zoo where you can walk in and, you know, there's bamboo around and you see um, an orangutan or something, which is really awesome. And I think we should, part of the, exhibit expansion that I think should happen is also for the habitat ecology part of it. You know, I want every visitor to understand the habitat an animal lives in as much as they understand the animal itself. Um, Because especially in times like these, we need more empathy for habitat. We need more understanding of the importance of habitat. Because as Jonah said, you know, if without the habitat, there's no, you know, what's the point of um, conserving an animal if you can't reintroduce it to the habitat? And of course, that's of course, there's a point, but you know what we mean. So it, I feel like if it means if it means you're standing in front of like an alligator exhibit and you can't find the alligator, I'm okay with that because that to me is part of the holistic experience of learning about that animal and, and where it lives. And I 
like to visit zoos where it's like, oh, you know, this this exhibit, this this um, one exhibit is so big, I can't find the animal. It's always a, kind of disappointing. It's like, oh, I really wanted to see the animal. But I also like it because it means that that, that animal is really comfortable and that it's really representative of what you would see in the wild. So that's one other priority um, I'd like to see. And I also want to see zoos and aquariums do away with every single animal theme park program that they have. Many have, actually. There aren't many accredited zoos that still do this, but some do. So dolphin shows, uh, feeding time performance sessions. Actually, I think most zoos do this. I don't like those. Uh, loudspeaker presentations, anything that resembles a circus, I think accredited zoos and aquariums should do away with. Um, and a lot of people will think SeaWorld when I say this, but that's a whole other episode. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I'm not talking about SeaWorld because SeaWorld is not a conservation aquarium. Um, it's not a legitimate aquarium. They definitely provide, they definitely fund conservation, but yes, they don't. Their ex situ efforts aren't contributing to conservation. The money they make goes towards conservation. Yeah. I'm saying that because I applied to a SeaWorld, SeaWorld grant. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we don't have to mention SeaWorld at all. I can like, totally no, cut kidding. that out. No, no, but you're um, totally right. Like it's, yeah, yeah it's not legitimate ex situ conservation. Right. Yeah. So, but I'm talking about like things like the dolphin show at the Baltimore Aquarium, which is my, which was the first aquarium, um, maybe not the first, but the first I remember visiting um, was the Baltimore Aquarium. It's a really good aquarium. It's an institution that does a lot of great conservation, education, and advocacy work, especially for the Chesapeake Bay, for like the local local wildlife, local um, local marine life, things like that. But they still make their dolphins do tricks in a pool for entertainment. Mm. And I would like to see them do away with things like that. Isn't that like a big, huge indoor amphitheater? Uh, yeah, a big, there. huge. In, yeah, I've been there. Um, a big, huge indoor sort of arena pool. Yeah. And you can sit in front and get splashed, things like that. Um, yeah, those kind of things, yeah. like all these things you're talking about, it's, it's making people only value w- wild animals as entertainment yeah exactly a circus like you said these animals aren't here to entertain us yeah um they can entertain us without having to do all these ridiculous tricks and stuff just by observing their normal behavior yeah exactly i mean dolphins are interesting in and of themselves if you just watch them you know swimming around in their regular exhibit that's exciting to see. Well, I, mean, I don't know if they should even be in a regular exhibit. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. No, that's that's actually a good another point. Another episode, another episode. Yeah, that's another episode, whether whether marine mammals should, yeah. Well, actually, let us let me just say one thing about this. Um, people, people tend to say, in my experience, when I say that I don't think that cetaceans, which are whales and dolphins, should be in captivity, they say, well, what about lions? What about uh, giraffes and stuff? And- it's a completely, it's, they're not even in the same category of animals because a lion is perfectly happy to live in a, an exhibit and be fed its food and not have to do anything. That's, I mean, if a lion could talk, that's probably what it would say. <laughs> it's a different level of intelligence and sentience compared to yeah. dolphins and whales. And, um, you know, you think about, mm-hmm. yeah, lions and stuff can move a lot in one night. But that's only when there's like not enough food around. If there's enough food, they're not really going to move that far. Whales and dolphins, I mean, they, 
you know, a pod of dolphins could move 150 miles in a day. And so, it's, you know, they're not comparable. And people always bring that up whenever I say that I don't like cetaceans in captivity. It's not a valid argument because they're not comparable. Yeah, I um, agree, actually. I hadn't really thought about that. I agree, um, especially dolphins and um, like the toothed whales. Yeah. They have like very specific social makeups, like social ecologies, um, and very specific behavioral ecologies that require them to be in large groups. And, and just a level of intelligence. Exactly. Yeah. A level of intelligence that, yeah, it does. Yeah. I agree actually that they, they shouldn't be, they shouldn't be in zoos. I don't know. Does anyone keep baleen whales? I don't think so. I don't think so. I, I think, think SeaWorld just... in San Diego had a gray whale once that they rescued and they released it. Oh, but I really? don't think that, huh. cause I, I, they're, I think they're too huge. Yeah, they're usually larger. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine a blue whale in captivity. <laughs> oh my god, that's absurd. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, I think it is because of their size, and I don't know what else. But I mean, there are a couple of species that are small, but obviously they they run much larger than the tooth whales. But um, anyway, but yeah, so I think that is an important point. Like you have to consider, um, like for example, I also have a gripe um, about primates on display. I don't like seeing primates on display. And I think, it, you know, if they must be there for conservation purposes, like if, you know, because zoos do conservation with primates as well, I just don't like that they're on display. And if they must be on display, I, I really think that the exhibit should be much larger so that they're not forced to sit at the glass. Because while, you know, gosh, while there's, you know, there's the experience a child might have of seeing a gorilla for the first time, like, you know, two feet from it on the other side of the glass and yeah that's a memorable experience but to me primates have like you said there's just this level of intelligence understanding and sentience um in primates that i think like i never see a primate on the other side of a glass and think that primate looks happy or pleased yeah they or always look bored they always you <sighs> i i mean yeah. i i completely agree i it's i look at primates in zoos differently I actually spend a lot, I actually did when I was at the Dallas Zoo, I just sat there and watched them. And you just, this is like so stupid to say, I can't believe I'm about to say this, but it's like, you almost like feel a connection or whatever, because, mm -hmm. um, or I guess I don't feel a connection. I feel for them yeah. because they're just sitting there and they're often, I mean, primate exhibits are often not the greatest exhibits. They're often this, these big mm -hmm. cage aviary things. Um, mm -hmm. And they're just hanging on the fence or just sitting on the ground because, yeah. you know, the social thing for them, a lot of those species is important. But also they're moving through the trees looking for food. Their intelligence just um, precludes the rest of their behavior in a captive sense, I think. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So anyway, there's a tangent that would probably require a lot of... <laughs> That would probably incite a lot of dialogue, but... Um, oh, man. Can you imagine yeah. being back at Unity College? <laughs> Unity College, where we went class. to undergrad, had a captive wildlife care and education program. Um, I'm not dissing it, but yes, that is an entire bachelor's degree that you can get compared to a regular wildlife biology bachelor's degree, which generally most zookeepers have. And it focused specifically on captive care and education, mostly with people that just wanted to work with tigers. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I noticed Anyways, that too. Anyway. Um, not everyone, but... Um, yeah, yeah. 
with some very staunch zoo defenders. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah. So um, back to my point about the circus, and um, I do think some programs that zoos have some like um, encounter programs that zoos have, like petting zoos, are, are really great for fostering empathy, um, especially in children. And actually, Joan and I were talking about this before we were recording. Uh, I actually am okay with photo ops. Like, so let's say a newly born tiger has been born at the zoo. I'm okay with having photo ops. I think that fosters empathy as well in children. Um, but Jonah made a good point. Actually, why don't you make that point? Because I think it was a really good point about the photo ops. Yeah, I guess when I definitely see where you're coming from when you're talking about it with children, because children, just like the way that they're, they just obviously operate differently um, mm-hmm. in the way their brains function. And so they see a tiger and that makes them interested in tigers and that makes them interested in animals or whatever. And they're not thinking about, you know, their parents take a photo of them with their the tiger, whatever. They're not like, oh, can I see this? Can I see the photo or take a photo of me? I mean, maybe they do, but um, mm-hmm. then you talk about, you know, I'm thinking about millennials or people that are older um, in the social media age, like we talked about in one of the poaching episodes, you know, the the option to have your picture taken with a tiger is going to make, that's, that's really cool, mm-hmm. right? That's all people are going to focus on is that's really cool. And I want a photo of that. So I could post that on Instagram because that's going to be such a popular picture. I'm going to get so many likes and like I, it, I just, so many people will do that. And that's where I think it's dangerous because then it's not like it's like the entertainment part of it, but it's making people value the animal for its, um, whatever social, social media payback or what value. Yeah. You know, they're going to get a bunch of likes for it. And Mm -hmm. I just don't think that adults obviously I'm generalizing and obviously I'm a huge pessimist. (laughs) I just don't think that um, most adults are going to do that and then be like, I want to save tigers now. I just don't think that's realistic because they're not, they're there for the photo really. Um, And I'm again, generalizing, I'm sure there's people that that would maybe change their lives. Yeah, no, I I agree that it's, it's a, it could be a slippery slope doing things like that. And it has to be a, in a controlled environment and it has to be for the right reasons. And if you're, if you're under 12, you cannot get your photo taking with this tiger. Over 12. Yeah. 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 (laughs) Um, I remember I actually, I have a picture. I was like scanning all my family photos. There's a photo, a couple photos of my dad when he was like a kid at the San Diego zoo and they have baby elephants in the petting zoo. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine? Oh my God. They're just like riding the Galapagos tortoises. That's exploitation. Oh that's what we're talking about. The, yeah, the yeah, history yeah. That's, of that's zoos ex- is changed. That's extreme. Yeah. Do not ride a tortoise. Um, they're not for you to be ridden. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, yeah. These ridiculous, the, these ridiculous entertainment things like Sea World. I was thinking about Sea World. Anyways. Uh, I know. Yeah. A whole another episode. We definitely should. Um, we might lose a couple of listeners, but. Um, if we haven't already with this yeah you know i mean at the same time i was growing up at the at the san diego zoo and wild animal park i also grew up going to sea world not as much because i wasn't as interested in marine um and i also frankly wasn't as interested in in seeing animals entertain but i mean Mm -hmm. i I remember i started feeling weird about it as i was in high school 
and I would go and I'll never forget. Well, there was a certain movie, The Cove, that changed my opinion about it. I forget at what point oh, in high school. Yeah. But I, I don't think I went to SeaWorld after that. But I remember right before I saw that movie, that documentary, I was at a, at a killer whale show, um, Shamu. And I don't think they do the Shamu shows anymore. Or they're phasing them out. They don't interact with them anymore because people get hurt and stuff. But mm, okay. I remember it appeared that the orca tried to jump out of the tank. It was really mm. weird. Um, I mean, maybe I'm being subjective and like interpreting a behavior that wasn't the real thing. But it jumped and like halfway it like hit the side of the glass. And this is like obviously serious glass. And it like, yeah, like slashed its body on like the edge of the glass, like where the tank is on the show, ex- show tank. Oh. And it like flopped back in the water and there was just blood everywhere. And it went up and then it like it goes up on the little platform on like the, you know, couple inches of water and then it slides off and there was just blood everywhere. And everyone was like, oh, but it was just like, I don't know, just like watching this animal. It's doing all of its stuff, all the behaviors. And then it just like looked like it was trying to jump out of the tank. It was so weird. I'm, I'm not trying to project like it was trying to commit suicide. I'm not trying to say that, but it was just... <laughs> Yeah. It was so disturbing, and that was my interpretation of it, was that it was, it looked deliberate. Um, and I was just like, I do not like this. Why am I here? Like, I don't even particularly find this entertaining. I just want to see a killer whale. That's all I am interested yeah. in here. And I can go without seeing a killer whale if, you know, I would be fine without seeing a killer whale if I didn't have to see this again. Yeah, um, yeah. Anyways. I don't know why I started talking yeah. about that. No, no, it's a good, it's it's a good reminder that of how unnatural that environment is um, yeah. for animals like that. So that these and these, I think that's a good that's a good way to end that. You know, these captive animals, while they are definitely we enjoy them, we find we can enjoy them in captivity and stuff. That's not why they're there. Um, yeah, that's yep. uh, entertainment comes last, and entertainment shouldn't be the case in a lot of. It shouldn't be the main thing in a lot of the cases anyways. Um, yeah, agreed. Um, I don't know. Do you have anything else to say about education at zoos? or? No, I mean, I think we covered it all. I mean. Yeah. I'll probably I talk mean, about of course, we have a lot, a lot to say. But then we I know. We could go on. Like we, <laughs> we both are very passionate about this, this topic. And I actually, I mean, yeah. I think a lot of wildlife people are – are blind to the value or the issues with zoos. They, they just don't think about it because they never went to zoos before. Um, yeah, they don't. Like yeah. In Maine, there's no zoos in Maine. Yeah, there is. <laughs> you have to go all the way to Massachusetts or what's this? No, what's the clo- Zoo New England is probably the closest one. I don't know. I don't know where the closest one is, but. Anyways. Um, yeah, no zoos in Maine. Yeah. So people just don't think about them. Yeah. Yeah. I guess, yeah, we've said a lot. Um, there's much more to be said. Um, so, of course, we'll probably revisit a lot of the, these issues um, in other episodes like SeaWorld, et cetera. Um, but, yeah, for now, I guess, um, what's this week's or this episode's sustainability tip? <laughs>
Um, yeah, so just a short one that is obviously going to be related to plastic, as always. Um, I think, okay, my tip is to shop online less. Um, you know, buy things in the stores because one, it allows you to choose products with the least amount of packaging, maybe even buy local stuff, support local businesses. Um, and, and buying things online, it's just, it's, there's, it just, there's so much packaging involved, the pa- plastic, things wrapped in plastic unnecessarily. And it's so frustrating because I'll order something forgetting that. And then it comes like double wrapped in a plastic bag. The box is wrapped in a plastic bag. It's like, this is so unnecessary and excessive. Why is this needed? And now I have to do something with this plastic bag. And it just, I have a hard time with that. Um, and actually, I just, there's some things you just can't buy in the stores, though. And that, that's really challenging for, for me because I really try to not shop online because you can't control for how they're going to package stuff, you know. Um, whether they put like peanut, those little horrible styrofoam peanuts in a box or something. And like I just, right before we started recording, I got some boxes delivered because there was things that I couldn't buy in the store and (laughs) unnecessarily wrapped in these plastic bags. Or it's, I thought I bought these things all at the same time because I thought they were going to come in the same box. But no, this one little bottle of something is in its own box wrapped in a plastic bag, just bouncing around in this huge box. Like, yeah, you can recycle cardboard, but it's just, the principle of that excessive waste just, you know, it's just so unnecessary. Um, we're just zombies to it. So anyways, just before you buy something online, think about, can I can I go out and buy this in the store? Like, okay, it's less convenient, but, um, you know, save it for when you actually have to run errands or something. That's what I do. So I think that's really practical. So if you have any questions or comments, uh, we'd love to share them on the podcast. Uh, so feel free to connect with us on Facebook or Instagram at Conservation Chronicles. Uh, no question, comment, or controversy is off limits. Uh, we want to hear from you. We want to hear anything you have to say. Um, and you can also visit our website at conservationchronicles.podbean.com um, where you can find other episodes. And you can also find other episodes on any podcast platform you use oh you can also email us uh, we always forget oh, yes. to include this um our email is conservation chronicles at gmail.com and all these things are like facebook and the website and stuff are linked so if you go to the website yeah. you will be able to find more of this stuff i think yeah all right thanks for listening <laughs>